If you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 73. Uh, we are still talking about the Psalms, and how many of you guys love the Psalms? Yes. Uh, is there anybody here who lights up the moment I say the word Psalm 73? Like, you know, this is, the, this is a Psalm that it's in your heart already. Gretchen, thank you, Gretchen. Um, <laughs> this is one of my favorite Psalms. It's one that I've come back to over and over again throughout the years. I love it. We have been spending the spring season uh, going through some of our favorite psalms. And what we are doing is not really trying to pull it apart, exegete it, you know, try to get all the theology out of it. We're really just trying to spend our, our time immersing ourselves in the language of the poets of the Old Testament, learning how to express our emotions and our experiences back to God. And as we've seen throughout this series that that the, the poetry of the Old Testament is not, it doesn't pull any punches. It's not, you know, just some flowery language that, that, doesn't, that is completely disconnected from real life. It's raw. Um, it's full of uh, exuberant worship, overflowing, almost gushing love for God. It's full of anger, um, frustration, uh, violence even. It's full of sorrow and depression and despair. Um, the entire range of human emotion is, uh, is, is found right here in these psalms. And so what we are trying to do is just learn how to use that language to process the very real things that happen on the inside of us through all of the seasons of our life. One of the big ideas that we are trying to drill home in this series over and over again is that you don't need to filter yourself when you're communicating with God. He is not looking for technically correct theological language. He's not looking for you to write some kind of flowery and beautiful poetry in order to express yourself. What God desires is honesty. What he wants, he wants all of you, even the parts of you that feel a little bit messy. So as we look at Psalm 73 today, we're tackling yet another one of those kind of messy bits that every single one of us experience from time to time. Psalm 73 is uh, the words of a worship leader named Asaph, and Asaph wrote loads of, of beautiful poems throughout the Psalms. Uh, he, he was a, a core worship leader for the nation of Israel, but Psalm 73 is sort of Asaph walking through the wilderness of doubt. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Something I'm sure that most of us can resonate with. So let's read the psalm together. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are, who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, and their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. 
If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when no one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Jesus, we ask that you would sow the words of Asaph into our hearts, that it would go beyond just our head or even beyond our emotions, and that it would reach all the way down to our souls, Lord, drawing us into that reality where we, like Asaph, would be able to respond to you after having gone through the wilderness to come out the other side saying, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So Jesus, lead us through this sermon. Speak, God. Amen. I know that this is a Total cliche, but it is a true cliche. Faith is a journey, not a destination. Like when we tell our testimonies, when we share our story of meeting Jesus, we always make coming to Jesus kind of the end of the story. Like it's the final chapter in the journey. Everything led up to this point when now, ah, I've arrived at the promised land and I'm settled and I have no worries And I have nowhere to go because I'm finally home. And there is like a sense in which, you know, St. Augustine says that you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Like there's a truth to finding our rest in God. But the truth is that when we begin our journey with Jesus, it's actually not the end of the journey. It's really the beginning of an even more beautiful journey that is full of all kinds of adventures, all kinds of trials, all kinds of tests for the rest of our lives. All of us have different stories of how we came to meet Jesus. For some people, it's a really intense story about about falling into addiction or destroying your life or gambling away all of your money, reaching rock bottom, and there in the sort of the depths of despair, God lifts you up and he puts your feet on a rock and saves you. But for other people, the story of meeting Jesus is totally different. It's they, everything in life worked out for them. They had success, they had money, they had comfort, they had all, fulfilled all of their dreams and achieved everything they ever desired. 
and yet found themselves empty before meeting Jesus and discovering that he was their true satisfaction. And then for loads of us, uh, I mean, statistically speaking, in the church, many of us just met Jesus when we were really young, before we had a whole bunch of life experience. Apparently, my mom says I was two years old when I gave my heart to Jesus. I must have really meant it. Um, I have no memory of that day whatsoever. Or, you know, maybe you, you met Jesus at Young Life in high school or maybe in a college ministry or something like that. And here we are with all kinds of different stories of how we got here. But by the providence of God, we are in this season sharing our lives together, journeying together in this story. And for all of us, there will come moments in our journey when our comfort is disrupted. When everything that felt really secure and certain starts to feel shaky. We all experience these seasons of doubt. And believe it or not, when you experience a season like that, it is not a deficiency or a sign that you are far away from God, that seasons of doubt are actually part of the journey. And sometimes these seasons, they come on us for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes it's because of difficulties in our life, the pain of, of just what it is to be in the world through sickness or divorce or children going sideways, just the real suffering of life. Or sometimes the disruption comes from just meeting people who think things that are different from you. And when you hear what they believe and what they think and how they process the world, it, it, it sort of jars you out of the, the comfort uh, and the, the security of your own framework. So for some people, it's just that you drift. You just find yourself drifting away from God and into more and more doubt. Many of us fear these moments of doubt, and we treat them like it is a monster that we have to defeat. But doubt is not a giant that we need to slay. It is a wilderness that we walk through. And all of us will walk through it at some time in our lives. And so when we walk through these seasons, it's our faith is being purified and tested. And not being tested like God is looking down at you to see if you can sort of white-knuckle, cling to your belief system, and just ignore all of the impulses that are causing you to, to change or to fear. But rather, it's this word, the word for tested in the Bible is one of sort of purifying uh, a precious metal through fire. It's taking your assumptions through the flames and seeing what it is that you had that was gold and what was straw. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Peter writes, In this you rejoice. He's speaking of suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so with all of that said, there are healthy ways to walk through that wilderness, and there are unhealthy ways of journeying through it. Right now, in sort of church world, one of the hot concerns that you hear pastors especially talking about is the issue of deconstruction. Um, that's the word that we're using now in the 21st century, way back when. It was just called backsliding. Um, but it's kind of like an intentional, it's like an intentional 
philosophical, theological, intellectual version of backsliding. And essentially, deconstruction is the dismantling of anything that's been constructed. And so theological deconstruction is the process of dismantling one's accepted beliefs. It's pulling apart the things that maybe you were given as an assumption, but may not actually be able to hold up over the test of time. And so much of what I'm about to preach in this section about deconstruction actually comes from A.J. Swoboda's new book, uh, which is called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. I highly recommend it. Great book. And then also some from a recent teaching from um, our friends over at Bridgetown Church. But deconstruction is not a new thing. It's actually a very human thing. It's something that humans have done from the very beginning. And see, there is, a, there is actually a really good version, a really good kind of deconstruction that is healthy and necessary. I think that every generation has things that they were handed from those who came before them that needs to be pulled apart and maybe even let go of. And we see throughout the Bible, lots of the biblical characters, they, they did a version of good and right deconstruction. Jesus himself came as an agent of deconstruction against the religious systems and assumptions of his day. When Peter was preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and later he baptized them, and he saw them filled with the Holy Spirit, this again was an act of deconstructing everything that went before it. All of the prophetic writings in the Old Testament scriptures are a form of the, the Hebrew prophets deconstructing the norms and the systems of their day. And then, of course, throughout church history, the reformers came. And they, they suffered, were imprisoned. Many of them died uh, a martyr's death because of the way that they spoke against the, the, the powers of their time to bring a deconstruction, a healthy deconstruction uh, of things that ought not to have been built up in the church. You see, this healthy kind of deconstruction um, where Jesus and the reformers, they use scripture to call out the world's corruption of the church. That is a healthy version But there is also another type of deconstruction that is increasingly common, especially among millennials, though not exclusively anybody can fall into this, that uses the values of the world to critique Scripture's authority over the church. And so healthy deconstruction is really good. And I can honestly say that personally, I've undergone a lot of healthy deconstruction over the last 10 years or more re-evaluating previously assumed theological positions and realizing that some of what I was taught wasn't really rooted in the Bible as much as it was in a particular evangelical culture that I was raised in. And so part of growing up was re-evaluating some of those things, letting go of the things that I was given that weren't really biblical, and holding on to, new, to, to, to um, better, more pure theological ideas. And if you want to know the list of things that I have deconstructed in my theology, you'll have to buy me a cup of coffee and sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I know that, I mean, it can, it can sound a little bit scary, right? Hearing your pastor say, like, I'm deconstructing or something like, like, what is, is Marshall going off the deep end? Can I trust him to hold fast to the Bible? You can. Like, this is good. This is really healthy. The things that I I have deconstructed in my own theological framework are things like women's roles in the church. 
my end times theology, how I read and interpret scripture, nuances around final judgment, aspects of God's sovereignty, nonviolence, and a bunch of other stuff. And here's the thing. If I was a member of a congregation and not a pastor, as much as it would be scary to hear a pastor or a leader say that, that they're growing, you want your pastors and leaders to grow, but in a trusted, healthy close to the Holy Spirit, guided by Scripture, under the authority of orthodoxy way. Amen? Amen. You guys trust me? (laughs) Okay. We can do it together. The next important point to make about deconstruction is that it is not the end goal. It is actually the middle of a three-step process of developing our beliefs. The first step is construction, followed by deconstruction, followed ultimately by Reconstruction. So construction is what happens when we're young and we are building a framework for understanding the world. And some of it may be, you know, from personal experience and discovery. Some of it is through learning at home or at school. Some of it is um, from relationships that we have and learning from other people. But when we are constructing a framework for how we sort of see and understand the world, at the beginning it tends to be very rigid. It tends to be very black and white. Um, you think that you know way more than you actually know. Man, oh, to be 28 years old, to be 20 again, I knew everything back then. It was amazing. And I was ready to fight, too. It was great. It's, it's a judgmental way of thinking. It fears ambiguity, and it needs to have safe, pat answers. That's stage one, construction. But then comes the second stage, which is deconstruction. And this is when you start to become aware of the flaws in your worldview and beliefs. It's when the crucible, the crucible of doubt refines your assumed structures. And you start to see how you may have been given information that was incomplete or the template that your family handed to you was skewed or biased in some ways. And you begin to ask really hard questions. And you begin to grow skeptical of things that you felt before were just assumed and certain. And deconstruction uh, is a really scary time for many people. Because as soon as everything that felt really secure and like really rock solid starts to kind of shake and a couple of the bolts come apart or whatever, you start to wonder if the whole thing is about to crash out and burn. And that's where Uh, That's where we really need the language of the Psalms. We'll get to it in a minute. Then comes stage three. After deconstruction comes reconstruction. After thoroughly examining and pulling apart your framework, you reconstruct a new one based on your life experience, based on the wisdom that you've received from people who have gone before you through reading and studying, and, um, and from the wisdom that you get from humbly learning how to uh, healthily interpret Scripture. And so reconstruction is a process of humbly accepting and surrendering to capital T truth and at the same time having a capacity for holding mystery with an open hand. Stage one could be characterized by rigid certainty. Stage two is characterized by skepticism and doubt. But stage three is characterized by humility and conviction. You see... 
it's stage three. There, there is a flexibility and a differentiation of self that happens where you no longer feel threatened by other people's certainty or their questions. And I believe that becoming a healthy and mature follower of Jesus requires that each one of us walk through each stage of this process to stay in stage one all of your life, to sort of have the framework that many of us were handed of the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, never getting to the point of also knowing that you have to learn how to interpret scripture. You have to understand theology. You have to see how it bears in the rest of the world instead of just having a very surface level understanding of the Bible. If you never get beyond that rigid certainty, you just won't fully mature and grow. Similarly, if you just live your entire life in skepticism and doubt, you're going to be miserable and you're not going to be a fully mature follower of Jesus. It takes getting all the way through to reconstruction where you become that non-anxious presence that God has desired for each one of us to be. And sadly, I believe that many people never make it all the way through. So as a parent, kind of understanding this framework, I find myself wrestling with what kind of template I am handing to my kids. You see, I grew up in an extremely healthy family. My mom is wonderful, in case you guys missed that from last week's sermon. She's an incredible woman. She taught me everything I know. She prayed for me every day. I want to be like her. There you go, Mom. Um, I grew up in a healthy home environment. I grew up in very healthy churches. I was handed lots of good stuff. And yet, still in my adult years, I had a lot of stuff that I had to dismantle so that I could grow. And so here I am as a parent, and I'm teaching my kids about the world and about the Bible, and I find myself self-consciously deconstructing theology for them as they're even trying to figure out and construct. In case you don't know, my children are four years old and two years old, and and we're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a great Bible, and we get to the story about the cross, and it's teaching a very specific atonement theory, and I'm like, Well, it's a little bit simplistic. It's theologically, I think that there's more nuance to it. And I'm trying to explain to them sort of Christus Victor theory. And they're staring at me completely blankly until I finally say, sure, Jesus went to timeout so you don't have to. Um, Because you got to give them something to deconstruct later. As pray for my kids. As parents, we do our best to give our kids a healthy framework, but every single one of them will have to, at some point, deconstruct some things that we handed them, because either we gave, it to, we gave them something that was unhelpful, or they just didn't understand what we really meant, and they took it a different way. But they're all going to go through this similar journey just like we do, and as parents, that is scary, It is scary to watch your kids suddenly ask really hard questions and feel like they're shaking away from Jesus. What do you do in that situation? And so I've had to give that over to God. My new goal is to hand my kids a story of Jesus that is so beautiful and so compelling that no philosophy professor could tear it out of their hearts in freshman year of college. And I want to desperately pray for them every single day, trusting that they are in God's hand, even in the wilderness of doubt. Which brings us back to Psalm 73. I think that we see a version of all three of these stages in Psalm 73. 
It opens with Asaph saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And look at this. We don't see any relational connection to this statement. It, this, is, this is a truism. This is a religious platitude. This is a general theological statement. God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. But then it starts to get a little shaky because his framework is tested. In verse 2 he says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, and I had nearly lost my foothold, because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The truism of verse 1 is being confronted and tested by the reality of what he sees actually happening in the world. And the level of rigidity that you have in stage 1 about these truisms, if the, the more rigid, the more brittle they are, the more they will be broken apart by the real life stuff. I know that God blesses those who are upright and faithful, but when I look around, I see terrible people are, are, are prospering and being blessed. God, what gives? And so verses 2 through 14 is a version of like a deconstruction for Asaph. All of his assumptions are being broken down by what he sees around him. It seems like the wicked are prospering. It seems like they get away with everything. It seems like God's not even really paying attention. And the more that you read in those verses, the more that you can see that Asaph has language that is full of doubt and even anger. And it reaches this point in verse 13 where he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. What's the point, God? I thought that, I thought that if I did all the right stuff that I was going to get the blessed life. But these guys got the blessed life and I don't. What's going on? And you see that there are times in stage two, in deconstruction, when the enemy wants to creep in and he wants to add accusations to your questions. It's not just about wondering what is true. It's how dare you, God? Maybe all of this was for nothing. Maybe God's not really good. Look at what obedience got me. And anger and resentment can creep in. When I was um, a teenager, I was, given, I was given some pretty terrible stuff at some of the youth conferences. One of which was, if you are a pure and righteous guy, God will give you a hot wife. Now, it worked. Um, in this case, it worked. But what terrible theology. And imagine coming through the other side. I was told that if I kept myself pure and devoted to God, he would give me a spouse. And yet here I am. I'm still single. Another thing that, another thing that I was given was, was the idea of, of the prayer of faith. And that God, if you have enough faith, God will just take care of something for you. You know, I thought that if I prayed with faith that God would heal me. And so why am I still in pain and sick? If God is so good and he knows the number of the hairs on my head and he sees every tear and he puts it in a bottle, then where was he when I experienced that abuse? You see, it's more than it's just a theological framework, philosophical questions that are being deconstructed. Because God is way less interested in making sure that you have an airtight philosophical and theological and intellectual framework. What he's after is relationship. 
What he's after is connection with you. It, and, he's, and, and sometimes it's our very categories, our false categories, that get in the way of knowing him. You see, doubt is a wilderness that we have to walk through, but we don't walk through it alone. Even when it feels like God is silent, he is present. And he's drawing us into deeper and more intimate relationship with himself. Because what he is trying to, he's trying to get us from believing to knowing you see, we, we in, in our Western framework, we have a tendency to, to think that belief is somehow more deep and personal than knowledge. Like belief is a mixture of information and hope, while knowledge is just merely cold, hard facts. But in the Hebrew imagination, it's actually the complete opposite. In, in the biblical narrative, and what the language we see in the Bible, beliefs are based in theory, but knowledge is personal. The Hebrew word for knowledge that we see all through the Bible is this, is this word yada. And it's not just about knowing information about something. It's personal, relational, and intimate knowledge. It's the way that a husband knows a wife. And so the wilderness of doubt is actually meant to take us from knowing about God or having ideas about God into deeper personal knowledge of God. Notice the shift in language between verse 1 and verse 23. You can see that, that Asaph, he begins his psalm by talking about God. Surely God is good. This is who God is. But when you get through the wilderness of doubt, his language shifts to you. You, God. He's not talking about God. He's talking to God. He starts with belief about God, and he ends with personal experience with God. In deconstruction and doubt, the end goal isn't about finding better answers. It's about experiencing God and knowing him. When you go through those wilderness seasons, that should be the aim. You see, the opposite of doubt isn't certainty. It's trust. Certainty is stage one. It's shallow and it's threatened. Trust is is stage three. It's relational confidence because you yada God. And so and when you experience the love and the grace of God in the wilderness of doubt, it flips your whole perspective. Asaph comes through the other side, seeing everything through a new lens. Lens. He begins by critiquing God based on worldly values. Where's God? I thought he was going to judge the wicked, not prosper them. What gives? But he comes through to see the reality that God, is, that God sees it all and will bring judgment in the end and that God cares about what he is experiencing in his own heart as well. And then he even begins to see himself in a new way. In verse 21, he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. The poet sees that in his doubt, he allowed accusation to get into his heart. And he was ignorant, and he was angry, and he was immature. He was a brute beast. And God loved him all the way through his wilderness, even in his ignorance and his immaturity and his anger. 
You see, God is not intimidated by our questions, our doubts, or even our accusations. God actually wants to use them to draw us closer to himself if we allow it. And then Asaph the psalmist, he comes out of this wilderness of doubt, leaning on God. He says, yet I am always with you and you hold me by your right hand or you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. There's a theme that is that runs through the entire Bible. We see it over and over again where God takes his people through a season in the wilderness and they come out the other side knowing and trusting him more. We see it with Abraham where he leaves his home, he leaves everything that is secure, he leaves his old framework, everything that he trusted in, he leaves it behind and he starts walking through the wilderness believing that he will find God on the other side because God called him out there. And God used that as a time of preparation so that he could receive his inheritance. We see Moses being driven out for 40 years as a shepherd out in the wilderness before he ever came back to lead God's people out of Egypt. We see Israel for it was 40 years in the wilderness before God brought them into the promised land. David was driven out. Jesus was driven out. John the Baptist, Paul the Apostles, 14 years out in the wilderness before he really started church planting all over the world. All of them spending long wilderness seasons before coming out the other side, mature and ready to lead. You see, in Hebrew, the word for wilderness is midbar. And um, its most literal translation means the place of hearing. It's, it's where we learn to hear God's voice is out in the wilderness. For me, this is literally true. When I need to hear from God, I go outside to where it is quiet. I go out and I look at things that are so much bigger than me. I stare at a rock that has been around long before I showed up and is going to be around long after I am gone. And, it, and God speaks to me through that rock. It's, I hear things there that I don't hear in a prayer room. And I believe that the figurative wilderness and the seasons of doubt is where we mature in our ability to hear from God, which feels counterintuitive because when you are going through one of those seasons, it feels like God is really distant and hard to hear from. But that's often the time when God is actually tuning our hearts to hear him in new ways, ways that we hadn't before. And then verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I mean, is there a verse in the Bible that's more stage three than that? This is the aim of our lives as followers of Jesus to come through saying that earth has nothing that I desire beside you. My heart may fail, my flesh may suffer, my life may not go as planned, but God is my source and my portion forever. You see, Asaph doesn't come through the other side with more correct theology. He comes through with deeper trust. He comes through knowing God. We're going to land the plane now and move into some ministry time. But if you feel like you're in one of those seasons, if you are right now in a season where you just feel like doubt is creeping in and for every answer that you get, more questions pop up, I want to encourage you, you're not alone. And there is nothing wrong with you. And God isn't upset that you're doubting. 
I've had incredibly difficult seasons of doubt in my life. And it is scary because certainty feels so much safer than ambiguity. Amen? And I want to be clear that if you're in that season, there is a healthy way to walk through it and there is an unhealthy way to walk through it. The unhealthy way to walk through a season of doubt and deconstruction is to walk away from your community, to process everything in isolation, to look for all the different podcasts and books that affirm every one of your your doubts and even feeds them. And sadly, this is how so many people walk through the wilderness. And And rarely is that the path that leads you all the way through to the other side. Almost never. A healthy way to walk through doubt is to do it in community. Inviting other people into your struggle. It's having difficult conversations and not being afraid to be very honest with what you're feeling and with what you're thinking. And to find people who will love you and pray for you and who aren't threatened by your questions. And in that season, give yourself grace. And understand that it's probably going to be more than a week or a month or even a year. Sometimes these seasons last a really long time. And in that time, I want to encourage you to be honest with God. In his recent book, Searching for Enough, Tyler Staten writes this, Spiritual breakthrough often starts with saying what you think and feel, but are convinced you aren't allowed to say. That's like usually the key that unlocks the breakthrough, or at least the beginning of it. And similarly, there's a healthy way to walk with somebody who is in the wilderness, and there is an unhealthy way. The unhealthy way to walk with somebody who is in the wilderness is to try to fix their issues for them. Seeing their questions as just needing a better answer, that is so unhelpful. It's an unhealthy way to walk with somebody in this that is in the wilderness is to be threatened by their doubt. And trust me, I get it. As a pastor, I desperately want to see everyone know and experience God's love and feel fully secure in his arms, knowing the destiny that they have ahead of them, not wavering, not being shaken. I want to see everybody with their feet planted on the rock. I hate seeing people in the pain of deconstruction. The healthy way to walk with somebody is with differentiation. Meaning that you can have confidence in what you believe even as someone else doubts it. You can love the person even if you don't agree with them. And you can care for them without judging them. You can be a non-anxious presence in their lives. You can be a rock that they cling to when they feel like they're out in the waves. And you can consistently pray and fast for them. It's like midwifing them through a painful labor. I was present for all three of my children being born. And I can tell you that there are few moments in a man's life where you feel more helpless than when you're watching your wife do the most incredible work that a human body is capable of doing. Somebody could climb Everest twice in a day and I would be less impressed. Like, seriously. And no matter how much you want to save them from the pain, you just can't. You can only be present in a source of encouragement. And you can rejoice in what God births through that that moment, that season, that experience on the other side. When we come to 
Psalm 73, when we come to the idea of deconstruction and doubt, I want to encourage everyone here. We're all in different places. Some of us might be experiencing stage two. Some of us might be still very much in stage one. Some of us may be feeling like we're coming through only to get thrown right back into deconstruction again. Sometimes you come in and out of these stages. It's not linear, and nothing is clean, and nothing is simple. So my encouragement to you is that wherever you find yourself, pray what you've got. If you're in stage one, and all you have is truisms and platitudes, pray them. Give them to God. Invite him to make those real, even if it means going through the wilderness. If you're in stage two, don't give up. Pray what you've got. Pray what's in there. Pray what you're afraid of. Pray what you're doubting. Pray what you're experiencing. And cling to God, trusting that he will walk you through all the way to the other side. And if you're in stage three, I want to talk to you. Because I want, I want to have what you've got. Pray that. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart, my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever.